You may be asking yourself, um, what did I just walk into? This is Christmas time. This should be a message on the holly jolly Christmas. And we just went through a song, a psalm, where the author related himself to a worm. You probably don't have worm ornaments on your tree, I'm imagining. Somebody say, I do? Okay. I'd love to hear more about that later. Um, It's a good question. It's a right question to be asking. This whole series is about how can we experience joy in the midst of longing. This series is the joy of of every longing heart. And so we've been going through these Messianic Psalms each week. This is our third week through this series. And the Messianic Psalm just means it's a psalm in the book of Psalms that foretells of a coming Christ, a coming Messiah. And so in this Advent series, Advent, again, is just also a fancy word that means the arrival of, uh, the arrival of an event, of a person, So we celebrate, as Christians, the advent of Jesus, our Messiah. And so in the midst of this Advent season, kind of it with Christmas, during the season, everything has cinnamon in it, right? Like that's the spice of the holidays, like everything smells like cinnamon. Well, for Advent, for Christians, the spices that we have during the Advent season are joy and longing. That's kind of what this season tastes like a bit for us, right? Joy and longing. And before we get too far today, I thought it would be good to um, break down those two words, joy and longing, because words are important and words are squirrely at the same time, right? Like a definition of something is really only as good as how people use it. A definition of a word is how a certain people at a certain time in a certain place in a certain culture use the word. And so joy can be elusive. Um, uh, One thing that drives me insane is when we use words that like don't line up well. So one of those for me that I see in like every marketing email that floods my inbox is bespoke. Do you see this? It's like everything is bespoke. Just like, oh, this bespoke candle. Bespoke, the definition of that word is is, uh, like a tailor would make you, just you, something that fits your exact measurements. It's got, you get your suit jacket, it fits your exact measurements, it's got pockets right where you want it, it's a dress that fits you perfectly, it was made just like you, it's one of a kind. But we use bespoke now for everything. There's like bespoke mass-produced candles, bespoke yoga pants, and there's even a bespoke dishwasher. And that makes me so mad because it's like, they, Samsung doesn't call you and go, hey, how many forks do you have? Eight? Okay, we'll make eight little holes for your forks. How many plates? Okay, no, they just make this thing. Bespoke means nothing now. It's just a word. And I'm worried, why am I going on my bespoke soapbox? I'm, I think we're there with the word joy in our culture. I think we can be there. That if you even Google it, don't do that now, because you'll get distracted. But if you Google it, uh, Google like joy synonyms, probably the number one alternative will be happiness or warm fuzzies. And it shows to me, it shows we've maybe lost some of the weight, some of the, 
the gravitas, because I don't know how to say that right, of the word joy. We've missed it. And there are a lot of theologians, specifically I want to say too, I'm talking about how joy shows up in Scripture. Because um, there are multiple words in both Hebrew and Greek that we translate into the word joy. But so even there, there can be some, some diverging paths of joy, even in Scripture, right? Because we're translating that word and it, it can lose some stuff there. But so I, I've looked up lots of different theologians, how they define joy. This is by no means a perfect definition, but this is me trying to shorten this down so that as we talk about joy and longing today, hopefully we have some sort of filter as we talk about joy, that's not just a dead word. That's not just a word that we go like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm sure, like bespoke. Um, imperfect definition of Christian joy, it's a soul-level gladness in God's love and promises. It's soul-level. What I mean by that is that happiness isn't, it doesn't hit the soul right? You could be having the perfect day. Your song came on for your alarm. Your kids actually walked themselves and got into the car and buckled in without you having to like arm wrestle them for it. Like things can be going well and something happens and your happiness is robbed, right? Like today's going great. And then Karen in the office says something and day's going bad, right? Happiness doesn't hit the soul. It can be taken from you easily. So it's a soul level gladness. And then what do we aim that? Where are we hoping to see that soul level gladness show up? It shows up through God's love and his promises. That is Christian joy, biblical joy. And then quickly, just to give us a definition, I think we understand longing maybe a bit better, um, but I would say just to pair these together, it's a soul level aching. So if joy is a soul-level gladness in God's love and promises, then longing is a soul-level aching for God's promises to be fulfilled. So I've been learning as I've been going through this. This is a hypothesis. I'll just say that right out the gate. This is, this is just my hypothesis. I'd love to talk to you about it if you have other opinions here. My hypothesis is that joy and longing actually are required as a, re a required pairing, and they have to go together. What I mean by that is if I ask you, hey, what do you long for? What is a longing of yours? And then if I was to ask, hey, where do you think you will find joy? Where are you going to to find joy? That I think those paths would diverge or would come together, converge. There we go, words. Um, I think that they would come together. That what we long for shows us what we believe, where we believe joy and hope is found. Does that make sense? So, my question for you today, and, and spend some time thinking about this, we'll get to it in a little bit here further down, but what do you long for? What are you longing for? Where does your life say you think you'll find joy? We'll think about that for a bit. I'll have my water. 
Today, we're going to jump in quickly. We're going to be in Psalm 22 for the bulk of this time. But I want to take a second. We've been going through these messianic psalms, these psalms that proclaim a coming Messiah. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't jump to the birth of the Messiah, if we didn't spend a minute here to say, look, look at these psalms that proclaim that there will be a child born from the line of David, and oh man, a child born from the line of David did come. God made a promise. God fulfilled a promise. So let's look at that really fast. I'm going to go very quickly through this. So you don't have to move over here, but I'm going to be in Luke 1 and 2. And in this passage too, tune your ears to Joy and Longing FM, if anybody still uses radio. Listen for the joy and the longing in this passage in a second. So what's happening? In Luke 1, we see that there is a woman, Mary, in Nazareth. She is greeted by an unlikely visitor, the angel Gabriel. And this angel Gabriel tells her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and, and will be... Uh, called the son of the most high and the Lord God, who will give it to him? The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Angel Gabriel is saying he will come from the line of David. We are seeing this link right between messianic Psalms and this coming Messiah right here. He will come uh, the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. As we talk about these messianic psalms, we've seen there's this kind of parallel tracks oftentimes in these psalms, that in some ways, King David is who this psalm is talking about, that he is this good king, uh, but obviously we see on this side a flawed, broken king and also in need of a savior, but that he is the good king foretold in some of this. Psalm 2, like we talked about two weeks ago, is in a way, it's this um, ordination, it's this celebration of King David. But then in these psalms, kind of a staple of some of these messianic psalms, is that then they break off. They, we, we think, okay, yeah, this, this, this description fits King David, and then it breaks off and goes, wait, this, isn't, this can't be King David anymore. We're not talking about this Messiah can't be King David anymore because King David can't rule forever. King David can't run a kingdom that has no end, that spans from edge to edge. This can't be the same guy. There must be, an, a, this must be alluding to a coming Messiah. So we're seeing the angel Gabriel is saying to Mary, Yes, they are in the line of David, and he is the one. He is that person that the, the Messianic Psalms, that the Old Testament foretold of. Now, jumping over to Luke 2, we learn that the Virgin Mary uh, does indeed give birth to a son, um, and they were following Jewish traditions. They name him Jesus, um, just like the angel Gabriel told them. Following Jewish traditions, they take him to Jerusalem, to the temple. And they do this because he is their firstborn son. And they are to offer a sacrifice. And that sacrifice, I thought this was mind-blowing, is two turtle doves. And now the 12 days of Christmas makes some sense to me. 
I just always thought that song was just pure avian nonsense. But there's at least two turtle doves. We've got that here. So that's the sacrifice. And now they're in the temple following these traditions. And there are two people in this temple. Two people that also get a front row seat to this promise that was made, this longing that they felt. They get to experience the Savior. They get to experience this promise fulfilled. The Messiah has come. Again, tune your ears, joy and longing. That's the spice we're we're trying to sniff out. So, now there was a man in Jerusalem. I'm in um, Luke 2, 25, if you want to be there. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who is righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit man, that's a packed phrase, was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, two turtle doves. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you may now dismiss me, your servant, in peace. I can die now. That's what he's saying. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said this to Mary, his mother. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And you might even have this in your Bible as a parenthesis. It says, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. He's talking to Mary. There is also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage and then was a widow for 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying Coming up to them at the very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, to all the longing hearts. Do you hear the joy and longing in Simeon and Anna? That Simeon, we can see, was in relationship with God, with the Holy Spirit, going, I long to see this Messiah. When is this Messiah coming? And the Holy Spirit would say, Simeon, you will not die until you see the Messiah. Can you imagine the longing of that and the joy of this promise? Hey, I'm not going to die until I see this Messiah. Is today the day? I'm going to the temple. Maybe today's the day. And then Anna doesn't leave the temple. It says, she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Longing. And then when they see this, they begin to proclaim to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. The Messiah has come. The Messiah is here. 
They're shouting, they're proclaiming it. How amazing. So I wanted to take that detour because I want us, this Christmas story, as we read it, maybe you'll be reading it in your homes over these next few weeks, it can become rote, right? We can, we can miss that there was a prophecy foretold centuries before this happened. That for centuries, generations came and went longing for this Messiah. And now the Messiah has come. Advent, the, the first coming of Christ has happened. So as we read these Christmas stories, as we go through the beginnings of the gospels in our homes, as we retell these stories to our children, to those around us, remember the longing, remember the joy. And I also want to point out that moment, the words that Simeon said to Mary, because he's also now putting a new point on the map. And we see that it was proclaimed too in Psalm 22. He's putting a point on the map that this Messiah will suffer. He is saying the suffering will be so intense that he will be pierced. A sword will be driven through his side and it will stretch and pierce Mary as well. The grief will be that significant. The suffering will be that significant. And that's how we get back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a peculiar psalm. It's an amazing psalm. It's strange for us in a way. Because in a lot of the psalms, we can draw a line, especially psalm, any psalms of suffering, we can draw a line of, from a historical event that David went through and a psalm. That in 1 Samuel, we see David fled and ran into a cave. Oh, and here's the cave psalm. Like, okay, we can connect these dots together. In Psalm 22, we don't have a historical moment where David experienced suffering like this. We do not have a historical moment that we know of where David had nails pierced through his hands where David was so emaciated he could count the bones on his body, where David was so thirsty that his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth, where he was so stripped of all belongings that there were people gambling for that last piece of clothing on him. We don't have that. So theologians would argue that yes, David may have figuratively suffered and had a figurative level of this sort of suffering. That this is him poetically saying, this is what it feels like right now in my soul. This is what this aching feels like. It feels like nails are being driven in. And that through the Holy Spirit, through this inspired word of God, even though David may not have understood it as he wrote it, he was foretelling of the exact situation that our savior Jesus Christ would endure on our behalf that Jesus would be the one who had nails driven through his hands, that Jesus would have people mock him and spit on him. And it's really interesting. We have a little chart, and we're not gonna go through it, but we have a chart of the parallels between Psalm 22 and Matthew 27. Psalm 22, 
that we see, I'll just do one, that all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads, that's verse seven of Psalm 22. In Matthew 27, verse 39, we see, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. That in a lot of ways, Psalm 22 is a more descriptive, more visceral telling of what Jesus endured on the cross than what we see in the Gospels. If you will, the, the, the camera lens is zoomed more on Jesus' mental, physical, and spiritual suffering that he's enduring on the cross, that we see that here in Psalm 22. We get a better glance at that in Psalm 22. At the beginning, I asked, you know, we, I joked about, man, how can we connect this to joy? How can we connect this Psalm 22 to joy and to longing? This does not seem like a merry and bright message. But I, dear friend, want to tell you, the only place to find unbreakable joy is at the foot, at the feet of Jesus, is at the foot of the cross. That is the only place we can find unbreakable joy, a joy that cannot be taken from us because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because of the suffering that this Savior endured on our behalf. And I asked you, what, what do you long for? What do you long for? And I want to be clear, a lot of the longings we feel aren't bad things. Longing for financial peace, longing for to not have to look at the calendar and wonder when payday is and hope you can make it to that day. It's not wrong to long and go, Jesus, please, I can't wait for the day when I don't have to do this, when my heart doesn't have to race hoping that I can make it to payday. Or that if you're longing for a relationship to be restored, you're going, Jesus, I ache in my soul that I haven't talked to this friend for two years. I want to be reconciled with them. It's not a wrong longing at all. My question for you and for me is where do we go with our longings? Do we take them to our Savior, the only place for unbreakable joy? A couple ideas I've had of where we can take our longing as humans, where we can instead just take our longings. What, what do we do with them? Where do we go with them? A couple of them, these are not all of them, but some that have hit me, is one, we numb. If we experience longings, maybe we want to numb them, that we can't be alone or in silence, because when, we're, when it's quiet, that's when we long, so we've got to fill it. We've got to fill the space with Netflix, with substances, with Hallmark Christmas movies. That's my guilty pleasure. They're so bad. They're so bad. Do we numb? Do we try and quiet them in our own hearts? 
when we feel that soul aching, do we go, how can I quiet this? How can I quiet? By rounding off the edges through substances, filling it with sound. Is it that you've actually tried to just shut down the longing engine altogether in your soul? It breaks my heart how many people I have heard lately, just people in my circle, friends, family, say something to the effect of, I have decided that I will always expect the worst because then I'll never be disappointed. That that's, that's going to be my worldview now, is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enter into every situation expecting the worst, and that protects me because then I'm never disappointed. To me, that sounds like we're trying to shut down that longing engine. We're going, no, because when I long, when I desire to see a promise fulfilled, I actually don't think it will be. I don't think that promise will be fulfilled, that longing that I feel. There isn't safety for me there, and so I'm going to shut it down. A third one, this might be a little bit quirky, but I felt like the Holy Spirit was convicting me of this, is I find instead of taking my deep longings to Jesus, I bring myself down to small longings that I actually have the power over, that I have enough control over. What I mean by that is there's nothing wrong with being goal-oriented, but I think the Holy Spirit's been convicting me that I can have these goals, these small longings that, oh, I want this thing, and so I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to work to get this thing. That's what I'm going to spend my time thinking about. That's how I'm going fill to the, fill the void. I want to learn about this thing. I want to do X. So therefore, I have to have something constantly going in my life so that I can actually control my own my, I can be the one to fulfill the promise that I have this longing and I can, I can be the one to fulfill the promise. I can be the one. I can manage this. This is small, a small enough longing for me to manage. Does that make sense? So where do we go with our longings? Jesus, on the cross, quotes the beginning of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in his time, he, they didn't have, you know, books, chapters, verses. If you wanted to um, reference a chunk of scripture, you would do so by saying the first line, by saying the beginning of that passage. And I tell you that because I think that leads to some very interesting and what theologians, people much smarter than me, would say, it's most likely that, yes, while Jesus was on the cross, he very practically was shouting out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he was feeling that, saying, Abba, Dad, where are you? This pain, this suffering is so severe have you hid your face from me? That Yes, that is happening. And he is thinking of this entire passage. It is most likely he is thinking of this entire passage. He is also thinking of the joy, of the momentum of this passage. That yes, there are questions being asked at the beginning of this Psalm 22. Like, why are you so far from saving me? 
Oh, do you feel the ache as you read that? Why are you so far from saving me? But then we get to a place later in Psalm 22. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Later, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And your offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. He has heard when he cried to him, that as Jesus on the cross is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he is also seeing the, the, the recovery, the, the answer, God's answer, that he will not hide his face. Friend, with your longings, take them to Jesus. He has not hidden his face from you. Jesus, later in his life, is talking to a group, and he says, if you who are wicked, which is a big word, if you who are wicked know how to give good gifts, if you who on Christmas Day will sit next to that tree and be excited to see your child, a spouse, a family member, your mom or dad, open a gift, and you just can't wait to see them light up, if you who are wicked know how to give gifts, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts? Take your longings to him. One of the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is joy. We need only to ask of him. He is not rationing out joy to people. If we go to him and we ask him, Holy Spirit, Please fill me with joy. Remind me of your promises. Show me your love through your word and through brothers and sisters. Show me, remind me of your promises that I can rest in you, Jesus Christ, who suffered on my behalf, who went to the cross and who suffered this deeply for my sins. Oh, we have a place to take our longings. And it's a place that is unbreakable. Last piece um, before I set up the communion table. It's really amazing how Psalm 22 ends. Like I said, we see Jesus on the cross say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he is quoting the beginning of this psalm. At the end of Psalm 22, it says this. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That what? That he has done it. Do you know what Jesus' last words on the cross were? It is finished. He has done it that just like Anna and Simeon could cling and long for this, these messianic psalms to come to life, that they're longing for this savior, and then they get to see this baby Jesus in the temple. 
We now are people that get to long for a savior, long for the promises that every tear will be wiped away, that the former things will pass away. Those promises that we have in scripture, we get to see that Jesus's answer on the cross is it is finished. And that Jesus' answer through Psalm 22 is he has done it. We can experience joy in the midst of longing because he has done it. He made a promise and he kept his promise. So band, you can come up. We're now gonna take time together to have a physical practice of remembering God's promises in communion. We go to the communion table, just as we were reading about Jesus' birth in Luke 1 and 2, we now read in Luke 22, on the night before he was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we remember him as a family. We remember the suffering that took place on our behalf. And we take together here as a family because we need community. God did not design us to long alone. God did not design us to experience joy alone. So, we go to the table together and we have one another because we are prone to forget God's promises. We are prone to wander and look for other ways to see our longings numbed, to see them crushed or silenced, to take control over those longings. We are prone to do that and we need the Holy Spirit through his word and through brothers and sisters to remind us of God's promise, to remind us of Jesus Christ. Say, it seems, brother, it seems like you're forgetting what Jesus did on the cross for you. It seems that you're forgetting that it is finished, that he has done it. You didn't do it, he has done it. What are you doing? Take your longing to him. We need one another. And we need to remind ourselves through the table that we have a savior whose body was broken and his blood was shed on our behalf. So the band's going to play. You can come down these middle aisles and take the elements, grab the elements and go back to your seats. This might be uncomfortable, but we've got a few minutes. I would ask if you feel comfortable with it, get into small groups of three to six people and take communion together and talk about, talk about some of those promises. Read through the second half of Psalm 22 together. What are some of those promises that maybe the Holy Spirit is putting on you now to cling to? That no, I will find my longing in you, Holy Spirit. You will wipe away every tear from my eye. This has been a season of tears and I have to remember that you promise you're gonna wipe away every tear from my eye. If you have a promise, if the Holy Spirit's bringing up a promise in his word, would you share that with one another before taking the elements? So we can go to the table in just a second. I'm gonna pray for us. Thank you, band, for leading.
Jesus, it is finished. You have done it. Let us, your people, let our weary hearts rejoice. We are weary. We try to put the weight of our longing on our own shoulders or on other shoulders that will ultimately break and crack under the weight of it. But Jesus Christ, you are ready because you are no longer on the cross. You are now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is where you rule and reign and you are ready for us to bring our longings to you. And Holy Spirit, you are ready to fill our hearts with joy. And I ask that you would in profound ways, Jesus Christ, please fill us with joy in the midst of longing. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that your body was broken, that you were on that cross with a crown of thorns on your head, that blood was dripping down, that you could count the ribs in your rib cage, that people were mocking you, that they were casting lots for your clothes. Thank you that you endured the cross with joy, scorning the shame, and you are now at the right hand of the throne of God. We celebrate that today, Jesus. Thank you. It's in your beautiful name, amen.